going beyond the headlines, getting to the heart of the story. Calgary Today with Joe McFarland on 770 CHQR. Well, good afternoon. I'm Jody Hughes in for Joe today. And thanks to our friends up in Edmonton for stepping in and helping us out so that we could send most of our staff off to uh, the service this afternoon. We do appreciate it. Rob will be back in his chair again uh, for the full show tomorrow, just in case you're wondering. We do have a lot to talk about. Uh, just to give you an idea of where we're heading for the next uh, two and a half hours, we're going to be looking at uh, that discussion going on with safe consumption sites across the city of Calgary. We are is going to be getting our latest update from uh, Saskatchewan, the Humboldt situation. The forensics were analyzed in court today and the agreed statement of facts was introduced yesterday. So we'll be chatting with global online news reporter Josh Elliott to getting the latest from Saskatchewan. And uh, more on the Springbank Dam. We did have an announcement today come down from the province. So we will be checking in with the Springbank Community Association. Looks like we're getting closer to that Springbank Dam being an eventuality. So we have uh, a lot to discuss. And coming up in just a few minutes, we will be checking in with Dwayne Bratt. Dwayne is going to be uh, uh, here for your questions. I'd like to just go over some of the latest in Alberta politics. We've heard that uh, some members of the NDP are uh, seemingly distancing themselves from uh, the NDP brand and putting Rachel Notley forward as uh, some polls suggest she's more popular than her party. Has this been done before? Why is it being done? Well, I think you can guess why, but uh, we'll talk with Dwayne Brad about that. Also, I want to go over that carbon tax uh, tweet fiasco if you will, from the UCP, where we did have a UCP candidate down in uh, Medicine Hat area throwing out this tweet that her church was going to be paying over $50,000 in uh, carbon tax this year. And uh, then when that was fact-checked and Jason Kenney responded saying that, uh, yeah, he hears stories like that all the time. So uh, we went down that rabbit hole for a couple of days on Twitter and learned a little bit more that uh, the numbers were off just by a little bit. And so uh, we'll see the repercussions. I think people having fun with it. And also some folks using this as an opportunity to take another look at the UCP and say, is this the party that you're comfortable with? Is the NDP the party you're comfortable with? Is the fact we have a carbon tax at all something you're happy about? So we'll cover all of that coming up with Dwayne Bratt in just a moment. But uh, in the meantime, it is going to be a nice night tonight. So minus eight to enjoy. The roads are in better shape and uh, we'll check in on traffic. It's 337. Thank you so much. 3.37 now, and I want to bring into uh, the program Dwayne Bratt, a political science professor, chair of economics at Mount Royal University. Dwayne, thank you so much for making time for us today. We appreciate it. No problem. So let's start off with the whole branding thing. We're hearing the story that uh, it appears that some of the NDP candidates are distancing themselves from the party, uh, putting forward that they're, you know, on not least team similar to something that I think we've seen in the past with Ralph Klein. Is this a surprise to you or is this even, is this an official move by the NDP? Several things. This, okay. this isn't unusual. When you talk about some candidates, these are all centralized. So it will be all candidates will have the same same poster design, same lawn sign, 
uh, design, and they'll go forward. In fact, in the last, in the 2015 election, there were so many um, NDP candidates who didn't go out and produce their own signs. It only had Rachel Notley's name uh, okay. uh, on it. But yeah, anytime you get a situation where the leader is seen as more popular than the party, they're going to emphasize the leader over the party. So Ralph Klein did that in, in 1993 when the Progressive Conservative label was quite toxic. And so they became known as, as Ralph's team. So this is, uh, this is a regular strategy that parties make when the discrepancy is, is so wide. Now, I mean, you also even see it on the provincial to the federal level sometimes where, you know, federally a party may not ne- be nearly as popular as it is locally. And you'll you'll often see that hyper focus on uh, the provincial arm of it versus the federal. Oh, absolutely. And, and you will when I say that the, the sign designs tend to be centralized. They are, but sometimes candidates will design their own to distance themselves from both the party and the leader because the local candidate is more popular than either of them. And so he or she may may design something that is more specific to, to them. What do you think is going to happen with the UCP or with their branding this time? It, it will be interesting to, to, to see how that occurs, um, whether they focus on the UCP or whether they focus on Jason Kenney or a combination of the, of the two. In contrast to the NDP, um, Kenney is not as popular uh, as the UCP is, but it's not as big a discrepancy, and it's tough to ignore the leader of your party, you know, especially the person who basically created the party by merging the, the Progressive Conservatives uh, and the and the Wild Rose Party. So I think they're in a in a different situation. The other challenge that the NDP have is trying to distance themselves from the federal NDP. And this is, again, not new. In the last um, election, I think Rachel Notley made it clear that she didn't want Thomas Mulcair to come into the province at all. And Mulcair was more popular in Alberta than Jagmeet Singh currently is. So because of the name similarity, uh, they're not going to try to confuse themselves with with the federal wing. I find it interesting, too, because this, to me, is one of the most... When you look at these parties, you look at the leaders, I find both Rachel Notley and uh, Jason Kenney to be some of the most polarizing leaders that I remember in Alberta politics in a long time. Oh, this this is uh, the most. We've had polarizing leaders, but they've tended to be of much smaller parties. We have not seen a true left-right split amongst the biggest parties um, going back until the the depression it's it emerged that way in the 2015 election but it was not predicted going into the election that it would be that way meanwhile this time notley and kenny have been campaigning against each other for about a year and a half so you know uh, they're well situated in, in how it's going to be and you're right you do have a very big difference between the two. This isn't policy differences in the, on the margins. This is fundamental um, politics. Well, and I mean, one thing that I'm curious to, to see also with this election, and uh, we've already had somebody texting us about this, is, you know, 
my guess, if I were planning out a, an election campaign for a party right now, what I would be sure to do is to stay out of that muddy water. But it almost feels like we're already wading into it where we're doing the, you know, this is what they did wrong rather than let's just focus on our policy. People keep saying that negative politics doesn't work, and yet parties keep doing it, which tells you that the, that they know that negativity works. Um, you know, you, you go back to the 2012 election and those bozo eruptions against the Wild Rose, that was very effective strategy that the progressive conservatives did, and it, it swung the election in, in their favor. I will say that the NDP has been much more in attack mode against Jason Kenney than the UCP have against Notley, except the UCP have focused their anger against the Trudeau government. So they've just been as angry and as vitriolic. They're just targeting someone else. Well, I mean, you know, to counter that, when you take a look at that whole thing that we went through with the carbon tax uh, just the other day and that tweet and Jason Kenney saying, you know, oh, well, I hear stories like this all the time of $50,000 carbon tax bills. I mean, to me, that was a, a... perfect chance to at least attack policy that they deem to be specifically uh, tied to Rachel Notley. Uh, and to Justin Trudeau, right? Because um, the the Trudeau government has said if there is no provincial program, then the federal backstop kicks in. So um, they have made no bones about it, but they focused on the carbon tax. They didn't focus it against Notley. They didn't call it, you know, Notley's carbon tax. Uh, they just said the the carbon tax. But isn't it technically the only one we have right now? Uh, no, because you, if, if they replaced it, you would have the federal program taking its place, just as you do in Saskatchewan and Ontario. But I mean, right now, today, like if you're talking carbon tax, that is a policy tied specifically to... But I don't think, I wouldn't call that negative. Uh, that is a clear policy difference. If you're saying we should have an election fought on policies... Fighting the carbon tax is as clear an illustration as as you get. What got them into trouble is that they were wrong about it. <laughs> and not only was the was the dollar figure wrong, but the pastor at the church oh my gosh. said he actually supports the carbon tax. Oh my gosh! Yeah, this was a great. I don't know. It was an interesting story to watch unfold. Uh, you know. So what what do you think is going to happen then? Is we you know are we going to get a, a full fledged budget? Are we going to get no we're not going to get a budget do you think we're going to get you know how much information will we have walking into this election you're not going to have a budget they are going to have a throne speech um and which will be pretty much the party manifesto of the ndp although given in the legislature and then they're going to call an election they will not produce a budget because it would be a bad budget and you don't want to go to the polls running a eight billion or seven billion or ten billion dollar deficit. So they're just not going to present a budget. And because they're not presenting a budget, the UCP won't produce an alternative budget, and it will inoculate them. So when um, when Notley's team says, you know, what is your plan to balance the budget? You haven't put it out yet the UCP is going to be able to respond, you didn't even deliver a budget. What's your, so. what's your gut 
feeling on that popularity right now? Like, I mean, I'm I'm struggling to, you know, I know certainly I sit in this chair and I can read these texts. You know, a communist by any other name is still a communist. So the NDP yeah. can rebrand their signs, but that doesn't change their ideology. We've also had people text before and say, well, listen, you know, if you ask around, nobody voted for the NDP. So, you know, how accurate do you think? Except for, the, <laughs> except for a million people in well, the last exactly. election. Exactly. So, yeah. so that's what I'm saying. How um, accurate I, I you, wouldn't base it on the text line. Clearly, there are people who do not like Rachel Notley at all and have never liked her. And the day after she won in 2015, they demanded that she resign because she had destroyed Alberta. But if you look at it from a larger perspective, I think it is clear that Rachel Notley, as a person, is seen as more likable than Jason Kenney as a person. And I, and normally, that matters. Normally, uh, in elections, we vote for the more likable person, especially with, with the gap that we're seeing. In this case, I don't think it matters. I think people are so hurt. The, the economy has been so bad that it doesn't matter that they, that they you know, they want a tough guy in there. And, and Jason Kenney's that tough guy. Well, okay. I want to talk more about this. Hang on for one second, Dwayne. We just have to stop for traffic, and then I want to continue down that pathway with you in just one sec. Okay. It is 3.47. Good afternoon. I'm Jody Hughes in for Joe today. Joe, will be back tomorrow. You may have heard some of the controversy going on about the supervised uh, safe consumption sites that we have uh, in downtown Calgary around the Sheldon Schumer. And uh, Councillor Woolley actually is responding to some concerns from residents saying that uh, there are safety issues, safety concerns from residents around the Sheldon Schumer uh, with uh, all kinds of reports of activity going on there that uh, residents are just not happy with. So I wanted to bring in uh, to the conversation Peter Oliver. Peter is the president of the Beltline Neighborhoods Association. Thank you so much for joining us, Peter. Hello, thanks for having me, Jody. Tell me a little bit about what is going on at that area and, and the complaints that you're hearing. Well, so the supervised consumption site's been open at the Sheldon Schumer for just over a year now. Uh, around uh, six months ago, we started to hear more complaints from businesses and residents just about social disorder in the area, um, just concerns about um, safety and needle debris and things like that. And so we've had a number of meetings, uh, and we've actually struck up a regular monthly committee meeting um, between sort of a working group with the community, uh, CPS, the police, AHS, the site, uh, businesses and residents directly in the area to sort of uh, create a close feedback loop to share information. Well, uh, we've been told until very recently that the, the police weren't actually able to, to track any noticeable change in terms of crime or state safety statistically until around November and so just today, they came out with a new report that actually dives deeper, and they're able to actually validate a lot of the concerns that some of the neighboring residents and businesses have been bringing up. Like, what kind of stats are, are backing up what you guys are hearing? Well, so, I mean, there's more um, things like car prowlings. There's um, violence, uh, violent-related crime increases, uh, trouble calls to police drug-related problems. One of the other, I think, major stories that kind of comes with the report is actually it's gone up significantly 
in the whole center city above and beyond the trend we've seen of an increase in crime across the entire city. So I think one of the questions this raises, and this is addressed by um, one of the 12 points that uh, Councillor Woolley has put forward in his notice of motion, that uh, a year ago the, the Calgary Police Service closed their last remaining downtown police station in Victoria Park. Previously, they closed their, their main downtown one and moved it up to Westwinds. And so we've been working with uh, a police force, which has largely had its main operations tucked away in industrial areas, far from where anyone works or lives or congregates in, in Calgary, at least most people. And I think that's left them stretched thin to be able to respond to problems like we're seeing now with an increase of meth use and opioid use in the city. And so one of the points that uh, Councillor Woolley has put forward is to engage with uh, the community here and NCPS on bringing a permanent brick-and-mortar policed, uh, centralized police presence back into the centre city in the community where they can actually integrate and, and help serve the community better. Now, playing devil's advocate, I would also <laughs> have to ask, you know, whether... If you're looking at car prowlings and crimes that are outside and, you know, I would have to think that weather would also play a role in that in that, uh, you know, it's been much warmer since November until now than it was in the same period of time last year. Are those stats uh, also the same across the city? You said in the downtown core, they're uh, similar to what you're seeing, but is it, is it similar across the city? Yeah, I mean, what you typically see, the, the stats compared um, the previous year, 2018, over the, the three-year average going back to 2015. And so, yes, you do see when they plot the numbers um, year over year from month to month, you do see, you know, peaks in the summer periods, and that's just typical every year. Mm-hmm. Um, but what you're noticing, though, is, is year over year increases for the center city, and then in some cases, um, more so um, in the, the area directly within a 250-meter radius of the supervised consumption site. So will, uh, Councillor Rowley has put forth this motion. Uh, is this with the backing uh, from you guys as well then? Yes. So we, I mean, th- this just got put out today, but um, there's a lot of good good initiatives in here, including expanding um, the the investment in the DOPE team, so that's the Downtown Outreach Addiction Partnership. They're kind of like a roaming uh, social worker van that goes around. Mm-hmm. And that goes, this this all coincides with another announcement today from uh, Minister Health Minister Hoffman from the province um, it, that's freeing up funds to, to put more resources on the supervised consumption site for the DOPE team. And also to look at really um, the the methamphetamine problem or the meth problem, um, because it's it, it's um, it's increased so much over the past year across the whole city, but we're feeling the effects of it here directly in the neighborhood. And so we have to ask the hard question. I mm-hmm. mean, um, the the supervised consumption site was open to reduce overdoses uh, from fentanyl, um, but what? what changes uh, to the program need to be made to to deal with an increase in meth use now that keeps the community safe and also continue to um, offer opportunities for people who are suffering from addictions to uh, to get help and get back on track. Well, Peter, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate your perspective. Thanks for having me, Jody. It is 424.
Good afternoon. I'm Jody Hughes in for JoJo is back in the chair tomorrow. 5.11 now and we've been keeping an eye on things in Saskatchewan. The sentencing hearing has begun for the truck driver in the Humboldt bus crash where 16 people died last April. I'd like to welcome to the program Josh Elliott. Josh is the national online uh, reporter for Global News. Josh, thank you so much for joining us today. No problem. How are you, Jody? I'm good, thanks. This is a tough story to follow, and I think uh, a lot of folks have had a lot of questions about exactly what happened on that day in April last year. And uh, as of yesterday, an agreed statement of facts was entered into court, and we have learned some uh, some information that uh, is undisputed, obviously, being the agreed statement of facts, but including getting into uh, the warning that the truck driver would have had with regard to that stop sign in that intersection. And that's right. Now, they really have laid out a lot of facts in this case, all at once, a lot to go through. But as you said, uh, the driver had a lot of violations on his record. He wasn't keeping good logbooks. He had 70 violations. And uh, what we heard today was that if someone had reviewed that document to, on the day of the crash, he would have been suspended for 72 days and it wouldn't have happened. So, there's a lot to go through and a lot to pick through, but this is one of the things that's really standing out from what we learned today. Well, yeah, and I mean, uh, going back to that warning just specifically to that intersection, I mean, there were five signs indicating there was an intersection, uh, including one sign 301 meters before the actual stop sign. We heard it was an oversized stop sign. Uh, so, I mean, we know for sure that he drove, uh, it's it's undisputed, he drove through that intersection and did not attempt to stop. We know that the uh, bus driver carrying the team and uh, the coaches, the trainer, they all, uh, he had a chance to see that truck entering that intersection. But going back even before that, as you said, uh, those violations, I think, are the things that right now everyone's saying, wait a second, this could have been avoided even before he hit the road? That's right. And there's, it's really, you know, there's so many points here where it looks like something could have been done and it just didn't happen. The violations obviously are a big thing. And as you mentioned, the signs, you had five signs, including the stop sign ahead sign. Mm-hmm. And there was one about 100 meters out as well. You know, if he'd stopped even at that point and hit the brakes because he was doing full speed, he would have skidded and just stopped before. So it really just, it all went wrong in so many ways. What kind of violations are we talking about with regards to his record? So it's mostly in terms of bookkeeping. So he wasn't keeping track of his hours. You have to keep track of your hours, what you're doing, where you leave and where you arrive, what time that happens at. And what they found was he wasn't keeping good records. And for some days, he didn't keep any records. So that would have been a reason to suspend him. And, and is do you have a chance, like in your uh, investigation of this today, or as you're following this story, do you have a chance to find out how common that is? Well, if we look at the bus driver on the other end, he also had to keep track of these things, and he had a spotless record. So, you know, this is part of the job. It's what you do. It's how you make sure you get paid. And he wasn't doing his job properly, as we saw. Yeah, in, in the article it says there were 51 violations relating to documenting those trip hours, 19 violations related to provincial trip inspection regulations, and that goes back to March 26th to April 6th. And then, um, as you mentioned, he would have been taken out of service. Had he been inspected, he would have been taken out of service for 72 hours if he had have been inspected prior to the collision. Is there a call for uh, more inspections or for a, a closer, uh, you know, any sort of changes to those uh, inspections or documents? 
Well, I'm sure those calls will come. I mean, this is such a high-profile case, and everybody's going to be looking for ways to make sure this doesn't happen again. It's gone across the country and really around the world. So I think everybody's going to be looking for ways to prevent it in the future. And one thing that people might not know when you do write an online story, often you'll have people respond to the story. Um, how has the feeling been uh, in the response that you've seen so far? Well, you know, it's such a complicated story because you have someone here who has pleaded guilty to the case. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you want, a, you want closure in the story. People want closure. And this is a chance to get that in some way. But this is not somebody who's fighting the charges, who's arguing against what happened. So it's a bit of a complicated situation that way. And I think some of the feelings are mixed. There's some people who recognize this person has some contrition. And there are others who just want to see justice and just want to see this case closed. And those 16 victims... Uh, some justice for them too. Well, and I, I, you know, to speak to that, we've heard that in the victim impact statements that, which I think is fully understandable, the full gamut of people saying, listen, uh, I need to forgive this person and someone else saying, how could I possibly forgive them? And, uh, you know, I think as an outsider, it's probably better that uh, at least this isn't being argued in court because I think that might be even more horrifying for the families. And that's exactly what he did say. Exactly. And that's really sparing the family going through that again, right? Hashing out all these little details and, and going over it bit by bit. And that's what we get in the agreed statement of facts do. You get, here's the whole story, here's what we've agreed happened, and we're not going to fight it out over this. We're just going to move on, and we're going to close this case. And, you know, one other thing that I think we should probably discuss is, uh, you know, there is absolutely no uh, chance that drugs or alcohol or a cell phone or weather or even the sun played a factor because all of those questions came up initially. That's right. They went through everything. They had a look at everything in both of those vehicles, everything around it. The only thing they found was a little bottle of rum in the back of the bus, probably with the players and definitely not with the driver. There really wasn't anything to indicate that someone was impaired or blinded or anything like that. So it's really, there's no other factor here other than that it just happened when these people were both sober. Man, it's uh, it's an awful story. Uh, thank you very much for your coverage on this and for uh, taking the time to speak with us today. No problem. Thank you for having me. It is 517. Well, good afternoon and thank you so much for joining us. 549 right now. And Joe, we'll be back tomorrow. We heard an announcement today that uh, a long-time holdout of land out by Springbank has decided to sell to the government. And I'd like to welcome uh, to the program Karen Hunter. She is the president of the Springbank Community Association. And we're talking about the Springbank Dam. Uh, Karen, thank you so much for joining us today. What did you think of the announcement today? Hi, Karen. Oh, hi. Sorry, I lost you there. That's okay. What did you think of the announcement today? Well, honestly, I don't really think it changes anything. It seems to be a symbolic gesture by the NDP. I think the timing, uh, everybody can guess, is probably around the election and trying to buy some votes um, in inner city Calgary. So I guess from an NDP standpoint, it makes sense. Um, you know, because it's symbolic really in a, in a timeline um, impact, because it doesn't speed anything up. It, this Canadian Environmental Assessment Agency still has their uh, timeline that they must adhere to. And then the Alberta government has an NRCB strat- uh, process that has to kick off. So the timeline is not really impacted. However, 
I am suspicious that Minister Mason does seem to say this will not impact the budget. Because honestly, the budget for land acquisition was $140 million for 7,000 acres, $20,000 an acre. That's pretty low. So it seems to me if, if the Robinson family is going to hold out three, four plus years um, and then suddenly say yes, the deal's been sweetened. So, um, you know, I don't begrudge the Robinson family for, for making that decision. They have to do what they have to do. However, uh, I, I, you know, I am suspect that uh, the budget is going to be uh, impacted one way or the other. And then I think as taxpayers, the Alberta taxpayers, need to understand what's the consequence of that. Obviously, there's been some land exchanged, plus some compensation is my understanding. So, you know, how does that impact the overall budget? Because the overall budget, I have to say, it was a little sketchy to begin with. There's lots of sort of things that are hiding in other parts in the Alberta government um, budget that have to do with the Spring Bank Dam. So just just makes me wonder um, what the taxpayers are on the hook for when when really uh, for half a billion dollars we're still not getting comprehensive water management we're still not getting fire protection upstream we we have second class flood mitigation in in Bread Creek and Redwood Meadows uh, and and really you have a community in in Springbank that is has indefinite harm I mean there's no way we can get around the dust. Um, potential standing water and related issues such as mosquitoes, road closures on an ongoing basis, all just over a mile um, west of our of our main community, including 2,000 kids that go to school, our community rings, our heritage center, that type of thing. But to be fair, I mean, you don't know that the deal has changed. You don't know that the, the pot was sweet, and that's your that is your gut feeling. But you don't know that. Is that? No, you know, I would say from the beginning, there has been very little transparency in the government's numbers, and although we ask. Uh, for more transparency, we're not able to get it. They're elevating roads, they're moving high-pressure pipelines, and the budget doesn't seem to account for a lot of those those elements in their entirety. So where where are they? Already, it was very similarly priced to McLean Creek, which is the other option most people in west of Calgary are advocating for. Either way, Calgary is protected, whether Springbank or whether um, McLean Creek. So in our view, you have to look and is there a scenario that provides win-win? Right now, the government's um, project is win-lose. It's a win for Calgary in some ways because they get that flood mitigation, but it's lose for everybody upstream. And in fact, I do believe it's a lose for the Alberta taxpayers because for half a billion dollars or more, I am suspect, again, um, you know, they're, they're really only getting a one-trick pony. This is really only um, flood protection. And with all the concerns about drought, um, warming, you know, and the dry environment we have in Alberta on a regular basis, how are we not um, managing the water better and looking at the Elbow River in its entirety and, and trying to manage the, the watershed to the best of our ability? So Minister Mason likes to say it's the best project. Well, it, it really isn't because they really did never consider McLean Creek and give it um, the full benefit of all their analysis. Neither, I would say, have they given Springbank the full benefit of their analysis. So, you know, I, I don't know. Do I trust what he says? I actually don't. Because I've seen enough to this point to, to um, I guess, maybe maybe think that their numbers might be a little, um, you know, underreported. Well, we'll f- certainly find out. Karen, thank you so much for your time today. Okay, thanks. That's Karen Hunter, president of the Springbank Community Association, responding to reports from the NDP government. They have purchased some of the land and feel they're one step closer to that Springbank dam uh, being built. It is 554. Just want to take a moment to thank you for taking the time to download and listen to the Calgary Today podcast. Don't forget to subscribe through Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. We'll chat with you soon.
911, what's your emergency? Ah, I'm on a cruise ship! Ah, there was an explosion! Oh my god, the ship is sinking! I can't get out! There's water everywhere! We're going down! I've got a lock on your location, stay with me. Hurry, hurry. Hello? Are you there? Help is on the way. Angela Bassett and Peter Krause return in an all-new season of 911 on a new night. Thursday, March 14th on Global. Stream on Stack TV.